This episode of Outlines contains description of crime scenes that some may find disturbing, so listener discretion is advised. It is 6.50am, a cold rainy morning on January the 6th, 1958, and tractor driver Les Peck is cycling from his home at Hill Farm Langham to work, an 11-minute ride away at Rivers Hall Farm Boxstead. As he cycles on the Dedham Road, in the half-light he thinks he sees the glimmer of nylons protruding from a shallow ditch. He sees what he thinks is a woman, her stockings, glinting, but in the near dark he cannot be sure. He speaks to her and gets no reply, so he finishes his journey to work, and when there he mentions the strange sight to Mr Ernest Ballam, who drove the same road just a short time before. Together they return, and there, illuminated in Mr. Ballam's jeep headlights, they see the dead body of a young woman. Quickly, they head to nearby Plum's farm, where they call the police and return to the scene, finding Mr. J. Harris, another farm worker who had been cycling to work, standing guard over her body. She is laying face down, half in and half out of a shallow, mostly dry ditch. Mr. Peck notices that she is dressed tidy-like. There is an overnight bag discarded nearby. She is wearing a neat grey coat, clean black court shoes and her nylons, which shine in the jeep's headlights. Around and under her head, pooling in the grass of the ditch, they can see her blood. This woman is 19-year-old Dutch national Mary Creek, And for the last 60 years, almost to this exact day, her murder has remained a mystery. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Before we begin talking about Mary, I'd like to say thank you to all of the listeners who have been in touch with me over the past few weeks, letting me know their thoughts on the show. Every review and mention that Outlines gets helps to spur me on to write these episodes and to improve the quality of my output. If you haven't before, but you wish to, you can contact me on Twitter at Outlines Podcast, Facebook by searching for the Outlines Podcast, or you can subscribe, rate, and review me on iTunes by searching again for the Outlines podcast. All feedback is welcome, and as always, if you spot any kind of discrepancy in the information I present, then please let me know. I try to be as accurate as I possibly can when I report the facts of a case. So now, join me, and allow me to do just that. I'll tell you a little about Mary's life, And then we'll go back to the evening of Sunday the 5th of January 1958, the night that Mary Creek was taken and murdered.
At the time of her death, Mary had been in England for only a month and was employed as an au pair and housekeeper in the home of Eric and Kathleen French of Bullbanks Farm, Atash Green. In Vorburg, Holland, where she had grown up, she had worked in an office, but a desire to learn English had taken her to the farm on the outskirts of a small Essex village. Her home is still situated on the main road, which runs between the towns of Halstead and Colchester, and it sits between two small villages and a few sporadically placed houses for company. The position had become known to her on the recommendation of her sister Wilhelmina, who had lived and worked in the area a year previous, and who Mr and Mrs French had initially wanted to employ. They were happy to take Mary in her place, however, and in December of 1957, Mary made the journey to England and took up board and work in their home. Later, Mrs French described her as not a particularly pretty girl, but she was very pleasant. Because her English was poor, Mary did not socialise much, although her sister had given her a list of contacts, Dutch and English, written in a scarlet diary that she could call upon during her time in the UK. Despite her poor grasp of the language, Mary did attend a Christmas party at Colchester Technical College, and here she made a friend. This was a German girl, 19-year-old Renata Crummock, also an au pair who worked in the village of Earlscone, a 23-minute bus journey from Bullbanks Farm. It was with Renata that Mary would spend the last couple of days of her life. On Saturday the 4th of January, at 1.40pm, she boarded the bus into nearby town of Colchester, where she met Renata, who had travelled the route from Earlscone. Together they took the train from Colchester to Liverpool Street Station, London. They had been due to stay with German friends of Renata, but when the plans fell through, Mary's employer, Eric French, made arrangements for the girls to stay at Netherlands House. They stayed overnight, and Renata is quoted as saying, We went to London together last weekend and saw Trafalgar Square and Buckingham Palace and the sights. It was late on the Sunday evening when the two girls arrived back at Colchester Station and at 10.30pm they caught the last number 88 bus of the evening from St John's Street Bus Park. That service travelled and indeed still does travel the route between Colchester and nearby town Halstead. It is a short drive of about 15 minutes to Bullbanks Farm where Mary was due to alight. The two girls sat on the rear forward-facing seat on the offside of the bus, with about 30 other passengers on board. Mr Bertie James French, the bus conductor, and no relation to Mary's employers, said, The Dutch girl who sat near the window could not speak proper English. I had difficulty understanding her. I didn't know if she wanted to get off at Bullbanks Farm or Fox's Corner, which is some 120 yards further on. Mary forgot to ask at her stop, and so the conductor reminded her, and rang the bell. But Mr Everton, the driver, new to the route, 
took it to be the bell for Fox's Corner, and so Mary and Mrs V Sexton, who lived close by in the opposite direction, alighted there. Mr French said to Mary, Sorry, you had just passed Bullbanks. It was 10.45pm. Mary was not far from her home, and when she got off the bus, Mr French and Mrs Sexton noted that she turned and faced back towards Colchester. She was clutching two bags, an overnight bag and a handbag, brown suede with a zip top, and under the light of a full moon began to walk the 300 yards home to Bullbanks Farm. According to her employers, she never returned, and by midnight, just an hour and a quarter later, she would be murdered in the ditch where she was found, with 17 blunt wounds made by something like a tyre lever to the back of her head. Her knuckles were bruised, and the small bones of her hands broken where she had tried to protect herself from the blows. Let's go back now, to the morning that Mary is found, to Dedham Road, where Mr J Harris, Ernest Ballam and Les Peck are waiting in the half-light of a winter's morning in heavy rain for the police to arrive. When they do, it's Detective Superintendent Ernest Jack Barkway, head of the Essex CID, and Superintendent Arthur Simpson, who are leading the team. They immediately take statements from the gathered men and officers patrol the local area, interviewing farm workers and anyone who might have seen a car at any point throughout the night somewhere along that stretch of road. They examine the scene, her body, her clothing, and conclude that the crime was not sexually motivated. Her clothes were neat, and she was still wearing her coat. Remember, while it may have been raining that morning, it was clear during the evening with a bright, full moon, and so detectives could clearly see how the blood had pooled around and under Mary. Sometime during the morning, her employer, Mrs Kathleen French, who had reported Mary missing earlier that day, after a phone call with Renata Crummock where she concluded that Mary had not made it home, had called the police, and she was asked to come to the ditch to identify her. She came and made the identification and was tasked with calling Mary's parents and sister to inform them of the tragic news. Soon after that, a distressed Kathleen was taken into the care of a doctor to treat her for the shock. Later, on the 6th of January, Mary's body was transported to the Essex County Hospital in Colchester, where a post-mortem was carried out by Colin Corby of the Forensic Department of London Hospital. It would take a little while for the results of his findings to be made known, but at the inquest, the doctor reported that she died of a cerebral haemorrhage and a fractured skull sometime around midnight January the 5th or early January the 6th. She had 17 lacerated wounds that could not have been self-inflicted.
Despite the lack of clues or evidence, it seemed as if Mary's case was in good hands. Jack Barkway spoke often to the media of his certainty that the murder would soon be solved, and his record on the force was such that it seemed feasible that it was only a matter of time before it would be. He was a man with an impeccable record of 20 solved murders under his belt. From reports, it appears that in his whole expansive career, he would only oversee two or three unsolved murder cases. I'd like to read you a little story about Jack, because he will come up again in a future episode, and was an important figure in Essex policing for a great number of years. This excerpt is taken from the book Swimming Against the Tide, The Diary of an Essex Copper by George P. Raven. One morning, the divisional detective, chief inspector at Chelmsford, when making his morning report by telephone to Jack Barkway, told him that there had been a shooting the previous evening. A farmer, it seemed, had taken his own life by putting a shotgun to his head and blowing his brains out. There were no suspicious circumstances, he said, although there had been no suicide note found. Jack sent for Roy Bloodworth and asked to see the photographs of the scene that had been taken the previous day. He spread them on his desk and studied them for a while before picking up the phone and sending for the chief inspector. He pointed to one photograph, which showed the body on the floor, pieces of skull, hair, blood and brains all over the place, the chair he had been sitting in on its side and the shotgun on the table. What do you mean, no suspicious circumstances, Jack said. This is a bloody murder. The chief inspector looked puzzled. What makes you think it's a murder? It looks like a perfectly straightforward suicide to me. I've never seen a chap blow his brains all over the room and then put the gun back on the table, Jack said. So, how did Jack go about collecting evidence when on the surface there seems so little to be found? In the month following the murder, one news article reported that 20 to 30,000 people in the area had been contacted and over 400 statements were taken. Officers embarked on the vastest door-to-door inquiry that the country had ever seen, spanning a roughly 80-mile section of countryside, encompassing all of the possible routes the killer and Mary could have travelled between Atash Green and Dedham Road, Boxstead. These routes are, for the main part, small backroads and scattered, sparsely populated villages. There is also an American airbase close by, and so they interviewed officers there. With each person, they would ask the same eight questions. Number one, name of the householder. Number two, address. Number three, the number of people in the house on Sunday, January the 5th. Number four, where were you after 10pm on that date? Number five, did you know or have you seen the murdered girl? Number six, do you know anyone who knew her? Number seven, did you notice any cars or anything suspicious after 10.45pm on January the 5th? And number eight, can you give any information at all? For one of the men surveyed, Mr Albert Britton, farm foreman at Hill House Farm, Oldham, just a stone's throw away from Bullbanks, the answer to question seven, did you notice any cars or anything suspicious, was yes. He told officers and the local newspapers, 
I left my house on the opposite side of the road at about 10.35pm that night. I was just going across to the farm where I had a cow calving when I saw this big car standing between the two gateways of the farm and just on the bend at the top of Oldham Hill. It had its rear lights on and I really didn't pay much attention to it. But it was a bright night and I could see that it was two-toned. A light blue bottom and a fawn top. I walked within 30 yards of it. This sighting is the basis of some confusion amongst subsequent news reports. Most seem to think that it was driven by a black man with a thin moustache, but this is not actually the case. This one, the two-toned American-looking vehicle, was discovered soon afterwards near Fairhazel Gardens, Hampstead, where it had been for about five days. It was taken and tested for fingerprints, and to the best of my knowledge, nothing came of those tests. The car, driven by the man with the thin moustache, was not actually sighted on the night in question, but had been seen curb-crawling in the village on a few occasions prior to Mary's disappearance. I do not believe that this man was ever traced. There was also, just to compound confusion, a third sighting of a vehicle. This was a car seen close to the spot where Mary was killed just before midnight. According to one article, it may have been a rumour put about by Air Force officers, and they could never be traced, and I do not think the car or the driver were ever found. As well as various sightings of suspicious vehicles, there were also reports of a woman matching Mary's description seen by three separate people walking down the hill into Oldham at around 10.45 that evening carrying a handbag similar to the one Mary was last seen with. Oldham Hill is in the opposite direction to Bullbanks Farm, and to get there, you would just have to walk right instead of left as you exited the bus. In order to do that, Mary would have been just behind Mrs Sexton, who lived on the hill corner, and who swore she saw Mary turn towards the farm. One of the witnesses was a cyclist, who first mistook the woman for a local girl, but on questioning, it was established that it was not her, and police began to work on the theory that maybe it was Mary seen walking in the opposite direction to her home. There were two possible scenarios where that could have been the case. One was that Mary simply did not know the area well, and in the darkness mistook her position on the road, though the moon was full and high in the sky. The other possibility was that she had a rendezvous that night, though Renata said Mary knew very few people, and swore she had no male friends. I was her best friend in England, and I know she had no boyfriend. She was not the type to have one without anybody knowing. She was a very nice girl. It has never been established who that lone woman was, and both the bus conductor Bertie James French and Mrs Sexton told that they saw Mary heading in the direction of her house when she alighted from the bus. At dusk, in January, just a couple of days shy of the 60th anniversary of her death, Gemma and I drove the road where Mary was killed, 
We actually drove it on a couple of different days, but that one at dusk is the journey that really stayed with me. As night draws in on the little country road to Boxstead, hedges loom, and there is little light other than our own headlamps and the curious shadows they make in front of us. Now, the road has been narrowed a little, and what was a fairly wide ditch has become grassy and more shallow. It's eerie in the half-light, and I can't help but picture Mary and her killer under the light of that January full moon. When we drive it again, just after midday, still January, it feels much safer. This time, we are heading out to Stratford St Mary, where I've seen a photo of Jack Barkway on the banks of the River Stour, just out the back of a timber-framed pub. In the photo, divers are dragging the river, looking for the murder weapon and for Mary's handbag, not discovered with her body and reported to contain the little scarlet diary where she kept note of the contacts her sister had given her. Despite the fact that police dragged every waterway along the 24 possible routes the killer could have taken, neither that bag or the murder weapon were ever found. As we drive, Gemma tells me about the time she found a part of a gun in that water while magnet fishing. She said it was old and that things get dragged to the top layer of the river's bottom all the time, that it was impossible to say that something dumped in the water could stay hidden, and that maybe the weapon is still there somewhere, if it was discarded there at all, and that maybe it could still be found. We make plans to fish there in the summer. Stratford St Mary is filled with Grade 1 and Grade 2 listed buildings, and so it looks much the same now as it did 60 years ago, and it's easy to see Jack Barkway standing on the river's edge ordering the police divers to start their hunt. The same goes for Bullbanks Farm, where mine detectors were used to search haystacks and fields for the murder weapon. And again, it's easy to picture the scene. Nowadays, the White House where Kathleen, Eric and their young children lived is covered in moss and the farm buildings are dilapidated. But they still stand almost the same as they did that evening. You can picture Kathleen and Eric laying in bed, drifting off to sleep, and from the main road, hearing the sound of the bus going by. I read two accounts of that night, as told by Kathleen. In one, she says, We went to bed early that night, and while in bed, I heard the bus go by. I was in a bit of a daze, and in the morning, I could not remember if I heard Mary come in. In the other, and this one I did translate from Dutch, so it may be a bit rough, but they quote her as saying, I suspected when Mary did not appear in the living room, that she had come in and went straight to her room. Yesterday morning, I went to awaken the girl and discovered that her bed was not slept in. It would have been then that Kathleen called Renata to check whether they had stayed in London, then called the police, where she would have been summoned to the roadside to identify the body. And finally, she would have called Mary's parents to tell them the sad news. After Kathleen informed Mary's parents, 
they made arrangements to stay with her sister's former employer, Mr. Fearon of Pear Tree Hall, Earlscone. Wilhelmina and her father, Antonius Creek, arrived as soon as they could on the ferry from the Hook of Holland to Harwich International, where they were greeted by press anxious for a glimpse of the murdered girl's family. They were driven by Mr. Fearon in his vintage Rolls Royce to his home, and en route he was so angered by reporters that he had to stop the car to tell them to leave the family alone. One by one, they slowly passed the vehicle, each taking a picture as they went. It was such big news in the county and further afield that a cameraman was even present as Wilhelmina and Antonius went to the mortuary to view Mary's body. And again, one rainy Saturday in January, the press gathered as Mary was buried in Colchester Cemetery. An article tells of this day, that a small procession followed Mary's coffin inside the nonconformist chapel, where a short service was given by Reverend P.H. Warwick Bailey. I've been to visit Mary's grave. It was Saturday the 6th of January 2018, about 11am, and it was raining. She can be found just near the main pathway which leads to Colchester Crematorium. I take the long route, working off of a picture to identify her location, and the graveyard sprawls out on all sides. It's pleasant. Someone made a decision to plant pines and other coniferous trees and so there is still green, even at this time of year. I find Mary's grave surprisingly easily, and when I get there, I see her small mossy headstone in the midst of ranks of others. I picture them all there that day. Mary's mother did not attend, but Antonius and Wilhelmina did. Along with Mary's employers, Kathleen and Eric, there was Renata and a few other friends. There were eleven wreaths, five Dutch, the rest English, one from Essex Police in the shape of a cushion, and attending the funeral were Detective Superintendents Arthur Simpson and Ernest Jack Barkway. They watched the paths and thickets for signs of anything suspicious, and as the procession emerged from the chapel, they took up position at Mary's graveside. I picture their bowed heads, and without thinking, I do the same. I find myself wishing I had some offering to leave her, 60 years and a day on from her death, but I do not. And so I silently tell Mary that I remember. And then I turn my back and walk away. And when I turn again, her headstone has blended into the others. And unless you knew what you were looking for, you could not pick out her bones amongst the rest. The inscription on her grave reads, Here Rust Mary Creek. And later, I look up its meaning. Find peace, Mary Creek. This podcast was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter with additional input by Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.